hard to pick up a newspaper these days without some reference to cryptocurrencies on the pages. But for some, the world of crypto assets and blockchain technology seems like another language. Since Bitcoin was first created after the 2008 financial crash, cryptocurrencies have multiplied along with their value. While the rise and fall of crypto assets has been well documented, with some investors making vast sums and others losing their life savings, scepticism from central bankers is rife. European Central Bank President Christine Lagarde has warned of the link between crypto assets and money laundering. Well, Bank of England Governor Andrew Bailey told investors to only buy cryptos if you're prepared to lose all your money. So with so much uncertainty around the future of cryptocurrencies, how viable are they? And do they really have a place in the investment world? Welcome to Pocketful of Dirhams. I'm Alice Hayne and joining me today is Russia Karabanja, Visiting Professor of Economics at New York University Abu Dhabi, who will share his insights into the misconceptions surrounding the technology. To get the latest episodes of Pocketful of Dirhams, make sure to subscribe on your podcasting app. Welcome to the show, Russia. Thank you, Alice, and happy to be here. Now, cryptocurrencies and blockchain technology is something you are very interested in because you're actually an astrophysicist who has since become a finance academic. But I understand you had an unusual approach towards understanding how it all works. You actually coded and created your own cryptocurrency. Why did you do that? In essence, you know, math, astrophysics and economics and finance, they're essentially very, very connected. And when the whole hype started, and actually I was following it from the early days, I realized that it's very interesting from the mathematical standpoint. I actually was more interested in the phenomena itself and wanted to really understand how it works and what triggered me actually to try to do this is that we have many, many theories and well-established theories why consensus should not work if you're trying to do a consensus on technical devices, even even without involvement of people. There is this famous uh, Byzantine general paradox, which tells us that basically it's very difficult to come up with a consensus and a joint view of what really happened in a computer network, for example, uh, or even among the people. And But somehow when the Bitcoin started as a first cryptocurrency that launched, this consensus worked much better than the theories predicted. It just worked far better than theories predicted because theories said basically getting a consensus on which transactions happen in the history, if you do not have some kind of a identities, and if we do not have a central point of coordination, theories tells us that we shouldn't be reaching a consensus on what actually happened. But reality was different. Reality was such that actually people were finding consensus. And then I wanted to really in depth understand how it really worked. And there was very little documentation about it. I mean, some documentation that was there was not not in a shape that one could really understand how it worked. So I took the source code of Bitcoin and started building my own cryptocurrency, not with the purpose to, you know, create a cryptocurrency and start a new movement, but to fully understand how it works. And what did that process teach you then about cryptocurrencies and the technology behind them? Well, I mean, one big learning that I had that actually the whole um, concept of Bitcoin was 
spectacularly well thought through. And it was building on a math that was built over the centuries. You know, we start basically, you need theorems that were constructed by Euclid. Then you need some theories constructed by Euler. <laughs> and then you need some even more, much more recent developments. And what keeps it actually safe is that we do not understand fully to some extent, some more recent work of more recent mathematicians from the 80s and 90s, like Ulam or people behind the encryption algorithms. So um, I find it really fascinating from the mathematical standpoint of view, but also additional component is that it embraces randomness and incentives like probably nothing we have seen so far. And when you say incentives, is that because people can make a lot of money? Well, I mean, some people can make lots of money. Some people have lost lots of money. But what I wanted to say there is that, you know, people are on Bitcoin. People are incentivized to maintain the network in a certain way. And these incentives have been built in a way to work in a very, very long run. So Bitcoin from the start, from 2008, basically was designed to provide certain incentives, incentives for mining until 2140. And there is an additional set of incentives, so-called tips that you can give, you can tip people to make your transaction faster. Uh, and this combination of incentives, I think it's actually very, very well designed to make it work well, but in the long run. And, you know, I, when people talk about the volatility of prices of Bitcoin, I think that this is, you know, we should not be talking about the volatility of prices of Bitcoin now or, or similar cryptocurrencies. We should be talking about volatility of Bitcoin prices in, I don't know, 100 years from now. This is when, when, these things, when, when the things are going to get interesting. So if you're talking about 100 years from now, that, that means you're telling us that dig digital currencies are legitimate and they're here to stay. Is, is that right? Well, I think that this is a very tricky and difficult question. I think that it will fundamentally depend on the on the involvement of governments and regulators. I think that the biggest threat actually for cryptocurrencies are regulators and uh, what are their what are going to be their decisions this is very very difficult to predict. But what we observe at least among cryptocurrency fanatics is that they are definitely dedicated to them in the long run. I mean, even the design itself predicts the movement and amount of coins being mined until 2140. So it was something that was by design thought through to last for a long time, let's say it like that. Whether it will or will not, I would not bet, bet my money on it. Uh, and I think it fully depends on how governments will treat them and behave towards them. So in that respect, I mean, what do you think might happen around the regulation of cryptocurrencies? A number of central banks have already said that they don't necessarily believe in crypto assets, but at the same time, they're bringing out their own digital currencies. So how are these different to the likes of Bitcoin and Ethereum? And can the two work side by side? I'm not actually sure that that uh, government-run cryptocurrencies that would be kind of central central bank towards people would work in the long run. And the reason for that is the following. Imagine that tomorrow there is no money but crypto money issued by a central bank. You basically have no incentive 
to keep your money anymore in a commercial bank. And if people do not leave deposits with their commercial banks, what will commercial banks use then to facilitate the credit activity? What will they use? You know, normally banks use deposits to lend to other people. And they, the classical business model of a bank would be to earn net interest income, the difference between the lending and borrowing rates. And they would do their business like that. I could imagine that happening in some countries where, where governments would not be you know, standing shy away from credit scoring people, like what we have seen, for example, in China. Uh, but then, you know, I, I think we should be careful what we're wishing for, because that would at the end up, ended up being, if we want to take credit, that governments are credit scoring us and giving us credit and commercial banks might be killed in the process. And I don't think that governments actually want to achieve that. So I'm not so optimistic about the, the, the launch of the cryptocurrencies by governments uh, because this might kill commercial banks in a process. And I think that governments will be very, very careful before they, 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 they start with such an endeavor. So at the same time, they then need to be looking at how they regulate cryptocurrencies such as Bitcoin. So what, what do you see happening there further down the line? When I think about cryptocurrency and their biggest and their biggest contribution to the society, what I see is tremendous technological prog- progress that we have observed. Because some of the fundamental issues from the mathematical standpoint of view and game theory standpoint of view and the technology standpoint of view have been made. And these are serious, serious, you know, steps in the right direction. Now, what is the biggest benefit for people? I mean, think about the following. Imagine you're a kid that was born today, that was born today. And then uh, imagine that every transaction that you make from the day that you were born until you die is recorded in multiple searchable databases. And this is the reality that we are living if we are out of cash. And, you know, epidemic actually accelerated move away from cash and almost everything. And you, almost everything is paid digitally. And, you know, if you go back to history, uh, if you go back to our history, first coins were invented thousands of years ago and we still use them. And I hate, you know, when I have to go and pay parking and I have to carry coins. I mean, this is so anachronous that it's pretty, pretty crazy that we are still even using them. But then again, you know, I love convenience of digital payments, but I don't like the, the, the fact that it's impossible to make an anonymous payment basically without cash. If you swipe your phone on a POS machine terminal where you pay, for example, you buy a coffee, uh, this transaction will be recorded by Apple. It will be recorded by your uh, bank. It will be recorded by your uh, card network operator, Visa, MasterCard, American, whatever you use. It will be recorded by a seller. It will be recorded by... Uh, a payment processing platform that the seller uses, et cetera, et cetera. So we are talking about at least five, six, seven different databases where your payment has been is being stored in a searchable form basically forever. I mean, and we should think twice whether this is something that we want because there are many, many good reasons why I would like some payments to be anonymous. You know, when I want to buy a birthday present for my wife, 
I can't do it anymore without her noticing it. Because we have a joint bank account, she gets a notification on her phone when I buy something. The only way for me to do it is with cash. And cash is gone. Cash is history. So I really believe that there is a value addition coming from cryptocurrencies because they, they, they have the ability to combine anonymity of cash and the convenience of digital payments. However, this comes at a cost. You know, of course, anti-money laundering, terrorism financing, et cetera, et cetera. And this, these are not small problems that governments should be taking care of. But these are the problems that I believe governments should be focusing on and developing tools and methods for controlling uh, anti-money laundering, con- for controlling tax evasion, for controlling terrorism financing using cryptocurrencies, and not on you know implying how and who and, and when we'll be using them. But it's not just about creating a currency, is it? Obviously, you know, we, we central banks do need to think about how they're going to oversee them if, if they're going to become part of mainstream society, as you're saying that they will be. But I mean, blockchain has lots of other uses as well. What other applications could it be used for? I think that actually alternative applications of the blockchain are even more interesting than the current as, as a form of a currency itself. I mean, to give you an example, nowadays, when you purchase let's say, Apple shares. Until Since since the time you have made a payment via your broker, until these shares are actually registered on your name, it will take roughly two days. Clearing and settlement of shares takes roughly two days. And actually, because this uh, custody process of shares is so complicated, uh, we have usually a very long custody chain, meaning your shares are registered with your broker. Then your broker has an account with his local custodian bank. Then your local custodian bank has an account with a global custodian bank. And then the global custodian bank has an account with a, some central central registry, which is, I don't know, in the US or Europe or in, in a local market or whatnot. Now, this whole process is so complicated because there is no clear technological solution that would allow easy clearing and settlements of shares that would be cheap and efficient. On a blockchain, this could be done in a very, very simple way and could be not instantaneous, but almost instantaneous. And actually what would be cool about it is that your shares would be registered on your name and not on the street name of your broker. Because imagine now that your broker goes bankrupt. What happens is, of course, there are some regulations, how they should be segregating accounts, et cetera, et cetera, and keeping your shares safe. Well, reality is often different. When many big brokers went bankrupt, people did lose their shares, and then government guarantees are introduced, et cetera, et cetera. This is one application. I could give you another application. When I was being uh, elected for a profit NYU. They had to verify all my documents, all my diplomas. And I studied in many different countries from Spain to the United States. And in order to do that, I had to actually, NYU collected these apostiles of hey convention, whatnot. I mean, it took like a month of paperwork for checking whether a document is real, whether the document is authentic or not. This could be done on a blockchain in terms of minutes. Some countries have moved actually in that direction, you know, especially some, some of the Baltic countries 
are actually running their full land register on a blockchain. And it's very easy to verify. I mean, look, I mean, think about it. I work as a professor. Student sends me a, a request for writing him or her a recommendation letter. I want to see their grade transcripts in order to know how well they did to be able to write about it. They send me this document. How can I verify whether they sent me the real document or they photoshopped some grades? I cannot. If I call university administration, they will tell me due to data privacy, they're not able to tell me student grades. Same if you're trying to hire a person to work for you. University will never tell you the grades of students. They're not allowed. Well, having it on a blockchain in an encrypted form where you cannot see the grades, but you could verify hashes like we are verifying, like we are verifying authenticity of the blocks on the blockchain. I don't want to now go into technical stuff via some hash pointers. But the point is, this could be implemented over a week. And all documents, you know, all this story about the Hague Convention and Apostyle of Hague, which certifies authenticity of signatures on paper documents, could be replaced easily. It's not just that. I mean, the kind of the potential for blockchain is huge. I mean, it, it, can, it can help all kinds of sectors, particularly something like the health sector, for example. Wherever you have the question of authenticity, whenever you have distrust among the lateral parts of the network, let's say you as a recommender or you as a patient or you as a whatever, I mean, even if you have supply chains, you have complex supply chains, let's say you're a car producer, you have complex supply chains and you would like to allow people to trade between themselves on the supply chain. This is one application. Or tracking of usage of certain software in a, in a large firm. Or, you know, imagine you have uh, a neighborhood. Each house has solar panels. Some houses produce more. Some houses produce less than what they need. They, you could establish automatic trade and settlement and clearing of electricity on such a grid. There, there is an abundance of operations. So basically, whenever you have... Well, you know, you need a consensus and lack of trust between, let's call it market participants. You could have an application for a blockchain use. But the problem is, at the moment, a lot of people don't trust the technology. So there are a lot of misconceptions around. What, what misconceptions have you noticed? Oh, I mean, lots of them. I mean, almost every article that you would read about either crypto or a blockchain is often, often misleading. You know, first of all, we need to understand we have reached the stage, or at least we used to be in such a stage of hype, that people thought that almost every problem could be solved by a blockchain. To give you an example, I mean, people were talking about, let's say, authenticity of luxury items, luxury goods could be tracked on a blockchain. That's very difficult to implement because you need some physical ID on these items and to link them somehow on to the blockchain. And this is a system in which what crypto experts would say you need an oracle. You need something to connect the physical good with, uh, with, uh, with the digital world. Whenever you have such an issue, if it's not objectively easy to measure, this is a very difficult problem to solve. Well, people will be saying you can solve almost anything with blockchain. And it has reached the hype that we have seen companies changing their name to add a blockchain in their name, something that we have actually seen in the dot-com, and that the stock price and the market capitalization and value of such companies increases few folds 
overnight, even though they have nothing to do with blockchain. Kodak is, I think, one of the prime examples that I remember since recent in, in recent years. And we have seen such a phenomenon in, in, in the dot-com bubble where we know that it was enough to change the name of the company and add dot-com to the name, and your value would increase by 70%. When it comes to cryptocurrency, there is lots of misconceptions. You know, people will tell you transactions are slow, they take one hour. Actually, transactions never happen, they're probabilistic. This one hour is just invented rule of thumb, which... It's, it's a heuristic. It has nothing to do with reality. Or people will tell you, you know, uh, massively uh, Bitcoin is mined in China. This is just not true. China is not the largest country where, where the most mining takes place. Then you will hear the stories, you know, cryptocurrencies are bad because, you know, Elon Musk tweets something and prices change. Yeah, but when Elon Musk tweets about any company, prices change dramatically. You know, I don't think that this is a characteristic of a Bitcoin. I think this is a characteristic of, of almost any company about which Elon Musk would tweet. So I think that there are lots of, lots of, lots of uh, misconceptions. For example, I can give you many more. They, people will tell you, you know, what keeps your Bitcoin safe is the fact that a blockchain, a copy of a blockchain is kept on many, many different computers. I mean, this is not true. What keeps your money safe on a Bitcoin is actually uh, a solid encryption methodology. Then people will tell you if quantum cryptography, quantum computing kicks off, uh, you know, then uh, Bitcoin will be broken and uh, all, all the money will be unsafe. Well, if quantum computing manages to break the most developed cryptography methodologies that we have basically implemented, I would worry more about our banks than about Bitcoin because upgrading an encryption algorithm on a Bitcoin takes, I don't know, a few hours while upgrading core banking system solutions of all the banks in the world will probably happen never. So there are lots of misconceptions and they usually come from a lack of understanding of the technology behind it. And what about mining? I mean, that's also something that gets talked about a lot. You know, the fact that mining for, for Bitcoin or mining for cryptocurrencies in general requires a huge amount of energy. Why is this a challenge and how can it be sold? I mean, for example, I've written recently about farmers who are using renewable energy to, to help power Bitcoin mining machines. Is that, is that one solution? When we are thinking about cryptocurrencies, let's say Bitcoin, I think we should never think about how is it now, but let's say, how will it be, for example, in 2050? I mean, this is a very, very young technology. I mean, it, okay, it's been there for roughly 10 years, but it still has much, there, there is much more to come. And uh, I can tell you what would be my preferred solution, actually. So currently, mining for some cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin, which rely on what is called proof of work, meaning that you are going to be verifying transactions and more likely you will be awarded for verifying these transactions, the more computing power you provide to the network to maintain the network. Now, if you think about this computing that these computers are doing, this is pretty much useless thing that they're doing. They're doing what is called calculating hashes. This is a mathematical transformation of a, of a text and they have to calculate it until the result meet, meets certain criteria. 
But imagine that these, all these computers in the network were actually doing something useful and not some random calculations. Imagine that these computers could serve as a generic computing device, like let's say Amazon Cloud, that they could actually provide the service that somebody would be actually willing to pay because this service is useful to them. This would be my preferred solution. We have actually seen the first steps in that direction. There is a cryptocurrency called Prime Coin, which doesn't calculate these hashes, which hold no value. But what it does is it tries to search for the next big prime number that we haven't discovered before. And prime numbers are those that are not divisible by themselves or, or that, that are not divisible by any numbers more than themselves. Now, this is also not super useful, you know, this is not curing cancer. But we have seen even these kind of attempts earlier. If you remember the times when we had screen savers that were doing protein folding or SETI at home, searching for extraterrestrial life and stuff like that. I mean, I think we could come up with actually useful algorithms that could be implementing in a cryptocurrency and solve some real problems. And maybe even potentially offer a generic computing device that would be doing something and people would be paying for this service, like they're paying for Amazon Cloud, like they're paying for Microsoft Azure Cloud or Google Cloud. So this would be my preferred solution for the for the problem of electricity. So, I mean... You're talking very long term here. You, you think this is going to go on for, for for decades, centuries, and beyond? What's the outlook from here? Is it sort of, you know, it's just it's huge? Can we have any kind of idea of what you think where we're going with all of this? I mean, I'm I'm very 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 confident that the blockchain as a concept and a technology will be there and that will be applied. And you know, about when when it comes to application of the blockchain itself. This is not even the future. This is already a reality. There are many, many good applications of the blockchain, which we already see in reality. I mean, even to some extent, you know, if a little bit more, let's say, relaxed interpretation, I mean, COVID passports to some extent rely very much on on the essences of, of, of the blockchain technology. I think this could be even called a blockchain technology. It's not... You know, it's not built on Bitcoin or anything like that, but in essence, that's how it works. So verification, for example, whether somebody is vaccinated or not, relies on a very, very similar principles. And we have seen many applications, you know, I have seen many companies that have engaged into this. I I actually participated in, 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 in creation or design, some of these. One very, very large company, for example, not to mention name now to to advertise, but they had a problem. For example, they have many many sub companies, and these many sub companies use Microsoft Office licenses. And now to track and to see how much who is using, and then to do clearing and settlement of prices at the end, because at the end they have to pay one bulk price to Microsoft, but they don't know how to track who used how much. And, you know, these sub-companies, they try to make their expenses look better. So there is lack of trust. They have built the full system on a blockchain very, very similar to blockchains that have been used for implementation of some cryptocurrencies. So this is not a distant future, you know. This is is already in application, let's say it like that. But when it comes to cryptocurrencies, I agree. You know, I don't think that in any reasonable future... When I say reasonable future, I mean in the next few years, this is not going to be a mainstream way of payment, for sure not, 
for sure not. But in some distant future, I would I would be surprised if it's not some form of a blockchain used for settlement of payments and clearing. So as we think about investing right now, I have to ask, have you invested in cryptocurrencies yourself? I have to say, I have never invested into any single cryptocurrency. However, I did mine and I did mine very early on where it was actually very easy to do. Uh, so this was probably my the best investment that I have ever made in my life when I actually started creating my own cryptocurrency and started mine, mining like in 2008, 2009, where this was actually very, very easy. So that was actually probably the best investment that I have made in my life. However, I have never but I never bought a cryptocurrency. And I think that, you know, I see that it's dangerous and probably a good benchmark for me is that my 11, 12 year old son, he just constantly wants to talk to me about Bitcoin. And when it reaches that level of interest, I think that we are probably not on, (laughs) I think it's not a good moment to invest. Thank you this week to Russia Karapanja, If you would like advice on your personal finance issues, you can write to me on pf at thenational.ae and remember that PF stands for personal finance. Please do subscribe to the podcast in your podcasting app to receive weekly updates and leave us a review so we know what you think. This episode was produced by Arthur Edison. I've been your host, Alice Haynes.